Well, good morning, everyone. Well, today is the first of four Sundays of Advent. And the term Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, which the early Christians used to describe the time leading up to Christmas. And the term has a wide range of meanings that were, had, were rich with implications for the gospel. Besides the meaning of coming or arrival, it also had military overtones. In ancient Rome, the term was a technical term for the glorious entry of an emperor into his capital city, often after a military victory. Caesar's coming is depicted as an event with global ramifications, reverberating from the Caspian Sea to the Nile River. Caesar is also portrayed as a god who ascends to the world of light, and his dominion extends beyond the bright path of the sun. So the Christians subverted all of that, and Advent became the most fitting word to describe the period leading to Christmas where we celebrate the coming of our King and Lord Jesus Christ, who is both fully man and fully God, and whose kingdom is worldwide and has no boundaries. And so to celebrate, we enjoy the Christmas traditions of the Advent wreath and candles. The wreath is created out of evergreens, symbolizing everlasting life. And the circle reminds us of God's unending love. And the four candles mark the four weeks of Advent and symbolize Jesus as the source of light that penetrates the darkness, bringing hope, love, and joy, peace into our lives. So our call to worship is from Psalm 80. And um, to define one word, there's the word here, the Lord of hosts. And that means the Lord of armies. And God had at his disposal the human armies of the world, the angelic armies. Um, and so when we come to that term, you'll know what that means. Psalm 80, verses 1 to 7. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention to our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Amen. Well, for our pastoral prayer, I thought it would be appropriate following Thanksgiving is to have the Apostle Paul pray for you. So I picked his prayers from Ephesians chapter 1 and 3. Would you pray with me? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. For this reason, because of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, 
and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ which he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And I pray out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit and your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to the power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Well, good morning, all. It's been a while since I've been up here, so good to look out and to see you all. Well, as been mentioned a number of times during our service, we are now the first week of Advent. Thanksgiving is behind us. Christmas lies ahead of us, but we have these four Sundays of Advent. And uh, we have lit our first Advent candle here. And perhaps some of you at home have Advent wreaths and Advent candles. And uh, to help you through this season, there is a sheet of uh, readings for the season of Advent that's on the table, the welcome table at the back. Uh, Four readings for each of the four Sundays, and then a daily reading that will guide you through the Advent story in preparation for Christmas. So Advent marks the beginning of the church year. This is the annual liturgical cycle whereby the church uh, universal shapes its life around the life of Jesus, his birth, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And And we live out our life in the light of those events. And the year begins not with the nativity, not with the birth of Jesus, but with this four-week season of Advent that precedes it. It is a season of longing and hope. And we look back and we remember Israel's longing and hope that God would come and save his people. And then we, in our own longing and hope, look ahead to the glorious return of this same Jesus who came. And he will return to complete our salvation. So there are four Sundays in Advent, just as there are four candles here, four Advent candles, and we have four Gospels, the fourfold Gospel. And the early church decided uh, early on that it was appropriate to keep these four Gospels and not merge them all into one. Although we have a tendency to merge them into one, that's just what we do with our nativity crashes. So there we've got the Star of David, 
uh, from Matthew above the stable from popular imagination. And we've got Matthew's magi together with Luke's shepherds and so on, and an ox and an ass that are drawn from Isaiah, all mixed up together. But uh, we have four different gospels, the fourfold gospel, and four different accounts of Jesus. Now these four gospels, they all end pretty much the same way with an extended passion narrative ending in the death of Jesus and his burial, followed by resurrection. For Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the middle of the gospel is largely the same. Ministry in Galilee, followed by an extended journey up to Jerusalem. But when it comes to the beginnings of the gospels, the beginning of Jesus' life, the four gospels are completely different. We get four different accounts of the beginning of his life. And what we're gonna do these four weeks of Advent is look at these four beginnings. So today I will look at the beginning of Matthew. Next week, Eugene will take us through the beginning of John. Two weeks time, it will be Brian on the beginning of Luke. And we'll end with Sean uh, looking at the beginning of Mark. So it's a series as it were on Advent beginnings. Um, so beginnings. Well, how do you begin a story? Well, Maria told us, uh, let's start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. <laughs> but where is the beginning? Now, I can tell my own story in quite different ways. Uh, notably, I can begin at different points in my story, depending upon who I'm talking to and what point I want to get across. So I could begin with when I came to the US um, oh, a long time ago, uh, nearly 37 years ago. Um, or more likely, I'll go back a few years before that to what I studied at university and grad school, which helps explain how I ended up uh, eventually here. Or I might go back further to my childhood and when and where I was born. Or if I want to try and explain why I consider Edinburgh my home, even though I've only lived there for about three years in my entire life, I might go back 200 years to my great times four grandfather who moved uh, the great distance of eight miles from one side of Edinburgh to the other side of Edinburgh. Um, and I have 200 years of family history rooted in that one little place. So different beginnings, but all part of the same story. So how do you begin the story of Jesus? Well, each of the four evangelists is intentional about starting from the beginning in telling their story of Jesus. But their beginnings are very different. Their starting points are different. Mark was the first gospel written, and Mark begins the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And Mark is in such a hurry to proclaim this gospel, this good news, of, that he skips Jesus' birth completely and begins immediately with Jesus, um, with John the Baptist preparing the way of the Lord. And within just a few verses, Jesus has been baptized, he'd been tested in the wilderness and has emerged faithful, and he begins his own ministry in verse 14, proclaiming the gospel of God, the good news of God. Nevertheless, despite this breathless beginning, Mark anchors his story in Israel's scriptures, in the prophets Isaiah and Malachi. 
Matthew begins with a genealogy, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. So he too anchors the story of Jesus in Israel's scriptures, going all the way back to Father Abraham. Luke begins by telling us how he wrote his gospel. He was inspired by other accounts that were based upon things, quote, handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses. And so he himself has now investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write his own orderly account. And he then begins his story within living memory. That's the eyewitness testimony. Within living memory, skillfully interweaving the births of John and Jesus together with the annunciations of those births. Luke also anchors this in Israel's scriptures. The first two chapters of Luke are resonant with the Old Testament. Wonderful, we've got a cat come in to listen to the sermon. Um, and finally, John is audacious in his opening. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Doesn't like my preaching? Maybe not. <laughs> Uh, in the beginning, the very words which begin the whole Bible, the begin the story of the whole cosmos at the beginning of Genesis, now begin this new beginning, the story of Jesus. So, four very different beginnings to the story of Jesus. Yet each evangelist is claiming to start at the beginning. And each firmly anchors the story of Jesus into a story that is already underway. Indeed, a story that has been underway for a very long time. It's the story of Israel, or in John's case, it's the story of Israel encapsulated within the broader story of the entire cosmos. So today we're gonna to focus upon how Matthew takes this existing story of Israel, and it's a story which has gotten stuck, and shows how God is breathing new life into this story in the birth of Jesus. So we look at Matthew's new beginning of an old, old story. Well, what's in a name? Well, we've all been wearing our name badges. Thank you for doing that so that we can recognize each other even with our uh, face masks on. Um, perhaps also to hide the embarrassing fact that though we've seen one another for years and years, we actually don't know one another's name or that we're getting old and we're beginning to forget names. Um, but we're wearing these name tags. And when we meet a new person, we want to identify and place that person. Sometimes they may have, hello, my name is, tag upon them. And we ask a series of questions. Who are you? What do you do? Where are you from? And Matthew, in his beginning to his story of Jesus, answers four such questions about Jesus. Who, how, where, and whence. So who? Well, he tells us in the very first verse that this is Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. How? How did he come to be? When well, chapter one, verses 18 and 20, he tells us that it is of the Holy Spirit. Where? Where was he born? Chapter two, verse one, he was born in Bethlehem of Judea. And then finally, whence? 
which I recognize is not part of many people's vocabulary today. It just means from where? From where did Jesus come in order to end up in Nazareth? So it's sort of like a from where are you from um, in order to come here? And the answers to these four questions not only identify Jesus, but firmly place him within this story of Israel. So if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to open it to Matthew chapter one and follow along. Uh, Open it to the very beginning of the New Testament. And we'll be covering two whole chapters, so I'm just gonna um, read occasional verses from this account. So Matthew begins with a genealogy in addressing the question of who. Chapter one, verse one. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And this is immediately off-putting because genealogies are boring. It's just an endless list of names. And we want to hit the fast forward button and move on to the next section. But this genealogy is important because Matthew here is providing the context for Jesus and his birth. And Matthew presents a stylized genealogy. It's structured in three stages around four key events, as he explains in verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon were 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, if you're to tell your story, how do you view your own storyline? How do you picture it? Is it a steady rise? Is it a J curve followed by uh, a drop, followed by a dramatic rise that takes you far beyond the starting point up into the heights? Or is it a reverse J curve, a rise followed by a long decline into insignificance, early promise turned to disillusion? Or is it a stagnating flat line that is going nowhere, a story that is stuck? Or is there a trauma there that dramatically changes the storyline and continues to haunt it? Well, Israel's storyline contains many of these features. And the history of Israel can be simply described and its storyline charted in these three stages that Matthew has laid out around these four key events or people, Abraham, David, deportation to Babylon, and the coming of the Christ. So Israel's story began with God's call of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And God called him, promised him a seed, both a son and a great nation, through whom God would in turn extend blessing to all the families of the earth. And really the rest of the Bible is the story of the fulfillment of this promise in Genesis chapter 12, the whole of the rest of the Bible. And the storyline from Abraham to David was generally upward. There are some illustrious names here. The patriarchs, Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. There's Judah, there's Boaz, and finally there's King David. There are also some surprising names here. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Four women in a genealogy full of men. Four women for whom God advanced Israel's storyline. Four women who were foreigners, 
who were incorporated into Israel. The second stage also begins with the promise of a son. God promised King David a son who would build a temple for God's dwelling in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And David indeed had such a son, Solomon, who built the Lord a temple in which he dwelt among his people. And Solomon's prayer of dedication of that temple and the entrance of the Lord's glory into the temple is really the high point of the Old Testament. It's the high point of Israel's story. And alas, the storyline quickly turned downwards. And the names in this second section are of the kings of Judah. And on many of them, the Old Testament books of, book of Kings renders the verdict, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And Israel went downhill until it suffered the catastrophe of divine judgment. God removed his presence. The temple was destroyed and the people deported to Babylon. They were exiled from the land of promise. And the trauma of these events rippled intergenerationally throughout the next many centuries. And most of the names here in this third section are unfamiliar because we're past the close of the Old Testament. God had ceased to speak to his people. Israel's storyline was flat. It was stagnant. It was going nowhere. Israel's story was stuck. But amidst the trauma, there were faithful Israelites who maintained hope, who based upon God's character and based upon the promises that he had made through his prophets, that he would come to save his people. And then Matthew ends his genealogy with a twist. After reading the father of 39 times, or those of you who grew up reading the King James Version, reading all those begats, 39 of them, when we reach Joseph, we expect to read Joseph the father of Jesus, or Joseph begat Jesus. Instead we read, Verse 16, Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So the genealogy ends with the fifth woman, who is the birth parent of Jesus. And the way Matthew has constructed the genealogy leads us to expect that Jesus will fulfill the expectation of the son of Abraham and of the son of David, and that he will heal the enduring trauma of the Babylonian captivity. He will unstick the story. But how can this be? Well, the second section, chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, addresses this question of how. Beginning with verse 18, where Matthew writes, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. And the actual birth is mentioned uh, obliquely and briefly in verse 25. Mary gave birth to a son. So that is an answer to the how question. Mary had a baby. But it's not the how question that Matthew is interested in. He pays much more attention to the how of the conception of Jesus than he does to the birth of Jesus. When Mary was betrothed to Joseph, which is a status more Solomon binding than engagement is today, she was found to be pregnant. And this was grounds for divorce. But we, the readers, are told by Matthew, and Joseph is told by the angel in a dream 
that the conception is from the Holy Spirit, verses 18 and 20. Therefore, Joseph should not be afraid to marry. And though Joseph has no part in the conception of the child, he is to name him. Verse 21, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the Hebrew name Yeshua or Yehoshua, um, anglicized as Joshua, meaning Yahweh saves, the Lord saves. God's people were, were longing that he would save them. That's what they've been praying for. But they were longing that he would save them from their Roman oppressors. But this Jesus will save them from their sins. And the Jews weren't really looking for a savior to do that. They had a temple and sacrifices and priests to atone for sins. But that system had not worked. But it wasn't the Romans that were preventing the Jews from flourishing, preventing them from achieving the promise within God's covenants with Abraham and with David. Rome was not the problem. Their sins and their lack of faithfulness were the problem. That's what had brought the devastation and the trauma. And then this miraculous conception from the Holy Spirit fulfills the scriptures. Because in the birth of Jesus, God will once again be present with his people. And so in naming the child, Joseph is included in the wonder of his presence, of Emmanuel, of God with us. So that's the how question of the Holy Spirit, God's intervention. The third question Matthew answers is, where was Jesus born? Chapter two, verses one through 12. And he tells us in verse one, in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. But why in Bethlehem? That's not the obvious place for the son of David to be born. The obvious place would be for the Messiah to be born would be Jerusalem in the king's palace. And so it was to Jerusalem that the Magi came, having seen a star. Now these Magi were not kings, there were not three of them, and their names were not Melchior, Balthazar, and Gaspar. Those were all later inventions. They were learned men, so the translation wise men is an appropriate one. Learned men who examined the heavens and practiced what we consider today the completely contradictory fields of astronomy and astrology. And the star that they saw prompted them to seek one born king of the Jews in order to worship him. And so to Jerusalem they came, expecting him to find the king of the Jews there. And they did find a king, but not the one they were looking for. Herod the Great had been king of the Jews for 35 years. He was a magnificent builder and a considerable amount of his building work survives even today. And among his buildings was the temple in Jerusalem, a magnificent building. But he was not a descendant of David and he wasn't even a Jew. So he couldn't be the temple builder of the Davidic covenant. Herod was a paranoid ruler, constantly afraid that people would uh, topple him. And it's therefore not surprising that he was tr troubled. And all Jerusalem was troubled with him because a troubled Herod meant trouble for them. 
And Herod summoned the religious leaders who told him that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem, as told in Micah chapter 5. And earlier, Micah had announced that the destruction of, the destruction of Jerusalem because of Israel's sin. So in bringing forth a new ruler, Micah says that God would go back before Jerusalem to Bethlehem, that the son of David would be born in the birthplace of David in Bethlehem. And so the Magi went the short distance to Bethlehem, guided by the star. And there they fell down and they worshiped the baby Jesus. And they offered him their gifts of frankincense, myrrh, and gold. So here we had Gentile nobles rendering tribute and worship to the son of David in fulfillment of Psalm 72, a psalm about Solomon, the son of David, now being realized in the one greater than Solomon, the true son of David. Representatives of the nations coming and bringing their worship. So that's the where question in Bethlehem. And the final question is whence, from where, in chapter 2, verses 13 to 23. So though Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, he did not stay there long. He grew up not in Bethlehem, but in Nazareth in Galilee. So whence came he to Nazareth? Where did he come from to end up in Nazareth? So this is the fourth question addressed by Matthew. He came from Egypt to Nazareth, again in fulfillment of the scriptures. And in this section, we've got three short scenes, each ending with the fulfillment of Israel's scriptures. Firstly, in verses 13 through 15, the flight to Egypt. Warned in another dream about Herod's murderous intent, Joseph was told to flee to Egypt with child and mother, remaining there until Herod was dead. Now, Egypt was a place where Jacob and his sons went in order to be preserved during a great famine. They were 70 in number. They were Israel in nuche, Israel in embryonic form, as it were. And out of Egypt, God called his people whom he had preserved alive. Out of Egypt, he will now call forth his son who is preserved alive there. And thus would be fulfilled another scripture. Out of Egypt I called my son, as we find in the prophet Hosea. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And the context here is the Lord's exasperation with his people, on whom he had showered such great love. Because the next verse reads, the more they were called, the more they went away. So even as an infant, Jesus was repeating Israel's history, being called out of Egypt, but with this major difference. He would not exasperate his father. He would not turn away. He would be faithful where Israel was faithless. Second scene takes place in Jerusalem in verses 16 through 18, the, the massacre of the innocents. So back in Jerusalem, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he flew into a rage and ordered the massacre of all the baby boys in Bethlehem. And this was quite in character for Herod, who was so paranoid that he killed numerous close relatives. 
He killed his favorite wife of the 10 wives that he had, and he killed at least two of his sons. But Herod was also repeating earlier history. We think of Pharaoh's attempt to destroy the male line of Israel in Egypt, and Queen Adelaide's attempt to destroy the royal line of Judah. And all of these were attempts by the power of evil to destroy that long-promised seed. And the distraught mothers were also repeating earlier history, fulfilling what was spoken by Jeremiah in chapter 31, where Rachel mourned her offspring that were carried into exile that were carried off into the Babylonian captivity, that great moment of trauma that haunted Israel. And this verse comes just a few verses before the promise of a new covenant in Jeremiah. Back in the Jeremiah context, the Lord has heard the grieving and he remembers. And he remembers still here, there is hope for the future. And then the third section, verses 19 to 23, is the return to Nazareth. In a third dream, the angel of the Lord told Joseph that it was safe to return home. But where was home? It was not Bethlehem. Instead, Joseph's return is described in three stages of increasing specificity. First, to Israel, then to Galilee, and finally, to Nazareth. Herod the Great was now dead, but he had been succeeded by a ruler who was no better than him. Herod died in the year 4 BC, and his kingdom was divided up among three of his sons. That's three of, the, three of his sons who managed to stay alive. Uh, Herod Archelaus ruled over Judea and Samaria as an ethnarch, but he was not named King of the Jews, which was the title he very much wanted. And he proved such a bad ruler that 10 years later, Rome banished him to distant Gaul and instituted direct rule through a prefect. And Pontius Pilate would later be one of these uh, prefects. Well might Joseph be afraid of Archelaus. And then the other son, Herod Antipas, ruled over Galilee as a tetrarch. And it was to his territory that Joseph brought his family. And this is the Herod that we encounter in the rest of the gospel. So Joseph brought his family to live in, quote, in a city called Nazareth. And we read that this too was in fulfillment of prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. But this is problematic, for this quotation is not found anywhere in scriptures. Nazareth is not mentioned in the Old Testament. Indeed, the settlement didn't even exist in Old Testament times. And describing it as a city, as uh, ESV does here, is very generous. Uh, even town, that's used by most other English translations, is generous. Today, Nazareth is a large city. But in the first, first century, it was a very small village with an estimated population of just 500. So what is the connection between Nazareth and Nazarene? And where in the Old Testament can we find this? Well, here, the word Nazarene does not mean that Jesus was from Nazareth, nor that he was a Nazarite. John the Baptist was a Nazarite from the womb, um, but not Jesus. His conduct during his public ministry broke pretty much every single Nazarite vow. So most probably, 
Matthew is drawing a connection based upon the word that lies at the root of both Nazareth and Nazarene, the word, the Hebrew word netzer, which means a shoot. As Isaiah foretold in the, the first verse of our scripture reading from Isaiah chapter 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch, a netzer, from his roots shall bear fruit. The Davidic line had become dead. There had not been a Davidic king on the throne of David for six centuries. There had been kings, but they did not have the right pedigree. They were not of the line of David. And now the people, the Jews once again had a king, Herod, king of the Jews, but he wasn't even a properly Jewish. But as foretold through Isaiah, the Lord was abandoning the rotten tree and going back to the rootstock, the stump of Jesse. And a netzer is a shoot that comes out of the rootstock. In this picture here, you can see an olive tree that has been cut off and all these shoots coming out of the rootstock. Jesus is this netzer and he shall be fruitful. As the last verse of our reading from Isaiah 11 says, in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. So Jesus was born into Israel's story. Matthew has taken great pains to show how Jesus fits into this Israel story. And in the next two chapters, he will continue to identify with Israel's story in baptism, in the temptation in the wilderness. Jesus repeating, recapitulating Israel's story. And he emerged from the wilderness as one who'd been commissioned to baptism, who had been tested in the wilderness, who was proven faithful where Israel had been faithless, unfaithful. And he was now ready to begin his public ministry and to announce the good news of the kingdom of heaven towards the end of chapter four. Jesus is the true Israel. He is the seed of Abraham that was promised. He is the son of David that is promised. He is gonna lead Israel out of their trauma of exile and bring healing. He is restarting the storyline that had gotten stuck. Now we all have different stories and different storylines. They begin in different places, different times, different space. And the timelines can look very different. It can be a steady upward rise, or it can be a J curve, or it can be this upside down J curve, or it can be a flat line. It can be a story that we might feel would be stuck. It can be a story with significant trauma. But whatever our story and timeline, we are called to come to Jesus and enter into his story. Healing comes when we allow our story to intersect with the story of Jesus. And Paul uses a number of words to describe our participation in the Jesus story. Because when we come to Christ, we follow his path. Paul writes that we are co-crucified with him. We co-die with him. We are co-buried with him. But then we are made alive and co-raised with him, to co-live with him. And now we are being co-formed into him. And when he returns, we shall be co-glorified and co-seated and co-reigned together with him. 
our lives are hidden in Christ Jesus. Our lives are being conformed to the shape of Christ Jesus. And most of us here are Gentiles who are grafted into Israel's story, which has its start in the call of Abraham. And gathered into Christ, the son of Abraham, we are the children of Abraham, heirs of the promise. And we give our allegiance and our loyalty and our devotion to our king, who is the son of David. And united together in Christ, we are brothers and sisters together in God's great story of redeeming a people for his presence through his beloved son. And we are the temple in whom he dwells. And we are knit together by his spirit at work in us, co-forming us into Christ. And none of us has a story that is so stuck, that is so full of trauma, that it cannot be healed by identification with Christ and participating in his story. His story is a downward path of dying to self, of self-emptying, self-humility, but then all the way into the grave, but then of great vindication and exaltation by God because he was faithful. We are called to place our life into his life and find new life and find a new beginning at this Advent season. Well, the way uh, we have two symbols whereby we uh, indicate our participation in the life of Christ. The first is baptism. Last weekend we had a baptism, a church baptism. A number of people who went down into the waters and rose up symbolizing that they had died to self and were rising to new life in Christ. And the other symbol we have is communion. And uh, we've been taking communion every week for the last, throughout the fall, and we're gonna continue that through Advent. And in communion, we, on a regular basis, remind ourselves that Christ died for us, that he gave himself for us. And we share the bread and the cup. And the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he gathered his disciples together and he took bread and he took the bread and the cup that were part of a Passover meal and he redefined the meaning of these elements around himself. He took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks. Let us pray. Oh God, our great Father, our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for the precious gift of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom you sent into this world, into Israel's story when it was so stuck, so full of trauma, that uh, you sent Jesus as the true son of Abraham, as the true son of David, as the one who would bring healing and salvation after the trauma um, of Israel's uh, uh, history who would heal not just from Roman occupation, but more importantly, bring healing from the power of sin and of death, uh, fear. Um, we thank you for the great gift that he would come and save his people. And Lord, as we gather now and we take this bread and we take this cup, we do so as those who are in Christ. We thank you that you have extended to us the life of Christ, that we Confess that we die to ourselves and we live unto Christ Jesus.
And as we take this bread and drink the cup, we pray that you would nourish us, nourish us deeply through your spirit. We pray that you would continue to form us into the likeness of Christ Jesus, whose return we await with great longing, expectation, and hope. Thank you, Lord, for these gifts and what they represent. Amen. I close with the collect for today, the first Sunday of Advent. Almighty God, give us grace to cast away the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now in the time of this mortal life in which your son Jesus Christ came to visit us in great humility. That in the last day, when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the living and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal through him who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Go in peace and hope and joy.